Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Want to give a shout out to the Farming Tales launch team over in this section, getting ready to branch out in September. Yeah. And, uh, and hello to all of you joining us online this morning as well. We're talking about families this month. Uh, you know, last Sunday was Mother's Day, which is one of the most significant days of the year. And next month is Father's Day, which is one of the days of the year. Yeah, uh, they're not the same, but this is the time of year we think about our moms and our dads and how they shaped us for good or for bad. It, it wasn't just DNA that we got from our parents. We got from our parents ideas about marriage and life and family and politics and conflict and money. We inherited from our parents mannerisms and speech patterns and social triggers have you ever caught yourself uh, saying something, doing something, responding in some way, and you thought to yourself, that sounded like my dad. That sounded like my mom. That was terrifying. And uh, it, it's good to be aware of that, to actually seeing your parent in yourself is healthy. It's, uh, it's good to be self-aware. Uh, that's, that's good, something for you to reflect on. Sometimes you see it in another person, and you should never mention that. Uh, uh, just a little tip, the, the thought you are just like your mother should never be expressed aloud. That's just a little uh, marital advice for you today. Uh, seeing a parent in yourself can be funny, uh, it, 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 it can be painful, and it often can be both. Have you seen these funny progressive insurance commercials where Dr. Rick helps these young homeowners who are becoming their, their parents? I find these very funny and painfully relatable. And I want to show you a couple of examples. If you're not familiar, uh, take a look. We need to silence our phone. Who knows where that button is? I don't have silent. Everyone does right up here. It happens to all of us. We buy a new home and we turn into our parents. What I do? is help new homeowners overcome this. Was that an adjustable spanner? Good choice, Steve. Okay, don't forget, you're not assisting him. You hired him. You have nowhere to sit. You have too many. Who else reads books about submarines? My dad. Yeah. Oh, those are... Progressive can't protect you from becoming your parents, but we can protect your home and auto when you bundle with us. Look at that. Do we really need a sign to live, laugh, and love? Yes. yes. The answer is no. I can help new homeowners not become their parents. Keanu. Nope. Koei Noah. No. Joaquin. No. It just takes practice. Give it a shot. Do you hear that? Yeah. It's a constant battle. We're going to open a PDF. Who's next? Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, okay. but we can save you money when you bundle home an auto with us. No fussing, no cussing, and no... Yeah. Oh, I find these so funny. I, I had a hard time picking a couple to show to you today. So we have three uh, that didn't make the cut that we're going to show at the conclusion of today's service. So if you want to stick around for 90 seconds of bonus material, um, stick around at the end and we'll have a laugh together. Uh, but of course, not everything passed to us by our parents is funny. Any honest discussion of family will include the family wounds that still affect us, the family baggage we still carry, the family secrets we still conceal. Maybe our baggage has to do with expectations that were placed upon us to do more, to be better, to be more. Maybe it can be about a father who abandoned us, a divorce that tore our world apart, 
uh, a cold, distant lovelessness that left a gaping hole in our heart that we've been trying to fill ever since. A harsh, temperamental impatience that left us walking on eggshells. Uh, there is no end to the impact of what the Bible calls the sin of the parents. Now, our theme verse this month comes from the book of Exodus. It's nestled right in there in the Ten Commandments, uh, right after the Second Commandment, Cooper, who memorized those commandments. Let's take a look at our, our theme for the month. God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, last week we focused on this positive line, God showing love to a thousand generations, but today we're going to dig a little bit into that line about the sins of the parents affecting generations. And the reason it says three or four generations is because in the ancient Near East, that's how they thought of a family. A family unit was multiple generations. In fact, they often lived this way, three or four generations living under a single roof in a same household. They didn't separate out the way we do today. And so they were all together all the time. And so the effect of the father, the effect of the mother, the impact would endure in that family as long as that family was a unit. And it's not really any different today. This idea is a recurring theme throughout the Bible, uh, regardless of the nature of the sin. Here's another reference to it just a few chapters later in the same section of the Bible. This is from Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. But he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So what does this mean? Sin of the parents, punishing children, multiple generations. What does that mean? Let's talk first about what it does not mean. This is not about God inflicting punishment on children for their father or mother's uh, sin out of some kind of spite or revenge. This is not about divine retribution handed out generation after generation and treating children as guilty for what happened instead of as victims for what happened. That's not what this is about. In fact, there's an entire section of the Bible uh, devoted to make sure we understand this correctly. A word of God through his prophet Ezekiel uh, specifically is designed to prevent people from misunderstanding verses like the one we just read. Uh, now, let's, uh, let me give you a little background here. There was a time when it was commonly thought that you inherited guilt, specifically guilt from your parents. Not just that you might have been influenced by their sin or not just harmed by their sin, but that you were guilty for it and should be punished 
not only by, by God, but by the law. That's the way people thought. But that is not what God had in mind when he talked about the sins being laid upon, some translations say laid upon the children. And so he sent the prophet Ezekiel to speak exactly to this situation. And he does it in a very direct and pointed and clear way about what the sin of the parents means and really what it does not mean. Because God didn't want us to have any confusion about this. So let me read this. It's a little lengthy, but it's clear. God says through Ezekiel, Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He's nailing everything in the Old Testament law that the Bible talks about. He follows my decrees, says God, and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord, generation one. And then it goes on. Suppose that man has a violent son who sheds blood or, or, didn't, or does any of these other things, though the father has done none of them. <clears throat> this son, he eats at the mountain shrines. He defiles his neighbor's wife. He oppresses the poor and needy. He commits robbery. He does not return what he took in pledge. He looks to the idols. He does detestable things. He lends at interest and takes a profit. Will such a man live? He will not. That's what the Old Testament says. Because he has done all these detestable things, he is to be put to death. His blood will be on his own head. Generation 2. Now we go to generation 3. But suppose this son has a son who sees all the sins of his father, that his father commits, and though he sees them, he does not do such things but does not eat at the mountain shrines or look at the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife. Same list. He does not oppress anyone or require a pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He withholds his hand from, the, from mistreating the poor and takes no interest or profit from them. He keeps my laws and follows my decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He will surely live. But his father will die for his own sin because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong among his people. Yet you ask, in this culture, you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? That's the way they thought. Since the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child does not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. <clears throat> the, righteous of the, uh, the righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from all of the sins they've committed and keeps my decrees and, and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. None of the offenses they have committed will be remembered against them. Because of the righteous, uh, righteous things they have done, they will live. Pretty clear, is it not? 
The sin of someone is not transferred down a generation or up a generation. So if the sins of the father is not the generational curse that we're talking about, that it doesn't bring children divine punishment for what their parents did, what does it mean? If we're not responsible for what our parents did, what is the nature of this generational shadow, this generational curse, this punishment that's passed on? And the idea here is that sin has a corporate dynamic. While one person bears guilt for what was done, other people bear the effects of what was done. One person bears the guilt, but usually other people will share in the effects of what is done. They'll feel its impact. They'll be subject to its influence. And for a long time, to the third and fourth generation, meaning it tears right through a family, father to son to grandson. The Bible makes it very clear that sin has a ripple effect. It is not done in isolation. When there is sin and dysfunction in a family, it affects the children and the children's children. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. We can share story after story on this. In his biography, Bruce Springsteen writes about his father. And I want to read a little bit from Bruce Springsteen's um, biography. <clears throat> he writes, as a child, you don't question your parents' choices. You accept them. <clears throat> they are justified by the godlike status of parenthood. If you aren't spoken to, you're not worth a time. If you're not greeted with love and affection, you haven't earned it. If you're ignored, you don't exist. Control over your own behavior is the only card you have to play in the hope of modifying theirs. Maybe you have to be tougher, stronger, more athletic, smarter in some better way. Who knows? One evening, my father was giving me a few boxing lessons, he writes, in the living room. I was flattered, excited by his attention, and eager to learn. Things were going quite well, but then he threw an open palm punch to my face that landed just a little too hard. It stung. I wasn't hurt, but a line had been crossed. I knew that something was being communicated. We had slipped into the dark netherland between father and son. I sensed what was being said. I was an intruder, a stranger, a competitor in our home, and a fearful disappointment. My heart broke and I crumbled. He walked away in disgust. When my dad looked at me, he did not see what he needed to see. This was my crime. And we could tell story after story after story on this. But in the time that remains, I want to work through the story of a guy in the Bible named Jacob. And we'll look at his story today. Next Sunday, we'll look at the story of his children. And the following week, the story of his grandchildren. We're going to examine this famous biblical family three generations deep. This really is a story of generational blessing and curse. A lot of you know this guy's story. Jacob's dad was Isaac. His mom was Rebecca. And this family had lots of issues, lots of dysfunction. But the crux of the problem can probably be summed up in one line from the biblical story, uh, the story of, of Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. Rebecca loved Jacob. The father, Isaac, loved the elder brother, Rebecca, the mother, loved the younger brother, and the favoritism was obvious. Esau was that athletic, hunter, outdoorsman, sporty kid who makes dads proud. 
And Jacob was more of a quiet bookworm who stuck close to mom. And rather than honor the differences of their children, these parents chose favoritism and deception. And it affected them and their children and their children's children. Jacob's Hebrew name means supplanter or maybe heel grabber. And it comes from that while he was still in the womb, he grabbed at the heel of his twin brother in an effort to try to be the one that was born first. He was a struggler. And then a lot of you may remember that later Israel's name, uh, uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which can be translated struggles with God. Either way, he was a struggler. And maybe you are too. Jacob did not get what he needed from his parents. Jacob did not get the blessing that he and every other child needs to get from their family. And it affected Jacob the rest of his life. His children were affected by it. And this is the problem of the unblessed life. So as we examine four of the struggles of the unblessed life, I encourage you to take an inventory of your own struggles. And the first struggle of the unblessed life is shame. Shame. I heard a story about a, a, a guy that walked into a pet store and he walks by the, the parrot and the, and the parrot says to him, you're a loser, squawk. Every time he walked by this parrot, you're a loser. And the exasperated customer went to the manager and told him what happened. The manager went right to that parrot's cage, opened the cage, shook the bird around and said, you cannot talk to my customers that way. And if you do that again, I'm going to pluck all your feathers and we're having parrot for dinner. And then he went to the customer and said, I'm so sorry that happened and that will never happen again. And the customer paid for his items and he was walking out the door and the parrot says, squawk. And the man turns around and says, what? And the parrot says, you know what. <laughs> yeah. Shame is, like, shame is this recording in our minds that says, you're not worthy. It's this squeaky, ongoing squawk that says, you know what. You know who you are. You know what you lack. That's, that's what shame is. And everybody here has tasted shame in some degree. Jacob's feeling of shame and inadequacy found their root in two of the primary timeless dispensers of, of, of shame. And the first one is the culture itself. Jacob was born into a culture that intensely favored firstborn sons. Everyone lauded the firstborn son who would receive a double portion of the inheritance, who would receive a very special verbal blessing from the father, and who would take over the family business. And Jacob missed being first by only a couple minutes, lost to his older twin brother. And I'm sure Jacob must have thought, if only I had been born first, then I would be the blessed one. I can't be blessed because I'm second born. And that's the way shame works. That's the lie of shame. That you believe you cannot be blessed because of some reason. What cultural reason is it that attacks you most often? That you can't be blessed because you don't have enough money. You weren't born into the right family. You don't have the right network. You're not smart enough. You're not attractive enough. That's shame's lie. And the second source of Jacob's shame is the most common in human history, and that is an unhealthy family. We've already seen how these parents played favoritism, played favorites, and you can imagine it, that the father says to his elder brother Esau, great shot, son, with that bow and arrow, fantastic, and turns to the younger son, why can't you be more like your older brother? 
And it always reminds the unblessed child, why, why am I not the blessed one? What did I do wrong? And this leads to, uh, to struggle number two, which is the drive to pretend. If you believe you cannot be blessed as you are, you will be tempted to pretend to be something or someone else. And, and no one was better at pretending than Jacob. You heard the story read that when the time came for Isaac to give his much-anticipated formal blessing to his eldest son, Jacob conspired with his mother to trick the nearly blind patriarch into giving the blessing to the wrong kid. And they come up with this elaborate plan to fool uh, Isaac the father. Uh, you know, Jacob puts on the clothes of Esau. Uh, his brother Esau was, was hairy and he was smooth, so he, he put animal furs on his, uh, on his arms and on his body. And uh, he had mom made some, some food just the way Esau the hunter would make it. And then Jacob the pretender walks into his father's room. This is the story from Genesis. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, a bold-faced lie. He didn't just say Esau, I am Esau, uh, your firstborn. You can almost hear the bitterness leak. Firstborn, the one that really matters to you, Dad the one for whom your eyes lit up and now your eyes are blind and they will never light up for me. I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. He's lying. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Have you ever felt like you had to be somebody else in order to be blessed? This was Jacob's struggle. And so he pretends. The plan works, and Jacob gets the formal blessing. Esau finds out what happened, and he comes running in, and Esau, the older brother, trembled. Esau said to his father, do you, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. It's hard to find any winners in this story. Jacob got the formal blessing, but what he really wanted was the love of his father. Because of, because of his deception, Jacob's going to have to leave and be estranged from his family for 20 years. His mother, who worked so hard to give him a place of honor, will never see him again. And that leads to the third struggle of the unblessed life, loneliness. Loneliness. Jacob had hoped that his desperate uh, attempt to get the blessing would mean a circle of love, but it makes him a lonely fugitive, and loneliness has become epidemic in America. Researchers at Duke and the University of Arizona discovered that the number of people saying that there is no one with whom they discuss important matters has recently tripled. Other research has had similar alarming trends. Americans feel lonely. Many causes have been proposed. Is, is it the surge of social media? Is it the depersonalization of the workplace? Is it the aging of America? But what gets often overlooked may be the greatest root of American loneliness, and that is the lack of blessing. The lack of blessing which leads to shame and isolation and pretending. God said at creation, it is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. So it should be no surprise that recent science have found, has found conclusive links between loneliness and a variety of illnesses like heart disease and dementia. Loneliness makes people sick. 
The next struggle of the unblessed life is relationship problems. Now, Jacob was close to his mom, distant from his dad. His brother hated him, but Jacob's real relationship troubles came when he fell uh, in love at first sight with Rachel. Now, some of you maybe, are, maybe have fallen in love at first sight uh, before, uh, or at least, you know, would say you did. Uh, but I'm suspicious that Jacob's problem here is that he's so enamored um, by the possibility of love that he throws himself in. He promises to the girl's father, Laban, that he will work for the father uh, for seven years if he's allowed to marry the daughter at the end of the seven years. I mean, this guy's in. He didn't, like, buy flowers or chocolate. He's going to labor for seven years, and then he's going to marry uh, the woman. Now, we would all do that. We would sacrifice for somebody that we love for sure. But Jacob gets things turned around here in ways that all people who miss the blessing do, and that is he thought he had to prove his value before he could be loved. He's got to work for seven years and prove himself, and then maybe the possibility of love will exist. And his relationship troubles had only just begun, recognizing that Jacob would work for love. Uh, Laban, the, the father, the, the, uh, trick, the trickster, and now Laban, the deceive, uh, uh, Jacob the deceiver, becomes Jacob the deceived, and the father pulls a sh switch around on the wedding night, and Jacob marries the wrong woman. He marries a sister of the woman that he wanted to marry, and he pledged another seven years to labor for Rachel. He just doesn't get it. If you do not feel blessed, there is no end to how much work we will go through to get the blessing that we crave. We need it. Amid all his misguided struggles, one instinct was definitely on target. Jacob knew that he needed to be blessed. He tried to buy the blessing. He tried to steal the blessing. He tried to work for the blessing. And then he will wrestle for it. In fearful anticipation of a reunion with his brother 20 years later, Jacob sends his family and his possessions on ahead. And the story picks up in Genesis, uh, Genesis here. So Jacob is now left alone. This is 20 years later. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And we later learn the man is actually an angel. It's somehow God in some kind of physical form. This angel, this representative of God, wrestled with Jacob till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and he, as he wrestled with the man. Then the man, the angel said, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob did not know the right way to get a blessing. This is not how it's usually done, folks. But he knew that he needed it. He knew that he could barely survive without it. I will not let you go until you bless me. Have you ever fought for a blessing like that? It's worth wrestling for. It's worth learning all you can about how to receive God's blessing, how to receive the blessing of others, and how to be blessed even from your own redeemed self-talk. And that's what we're going to learn about in the weeks ahead as we continue the story of this family uh, starting next week. It'll be no surprise to you that when Jacob became a parent, he repeated some of the same parental mistakes that his parents did. 
It will also be no surprise to you that God blessed this family in incredible ways and that Jacob becomes one of the great patriarchs of the church and he becomes a blessing to his grandchildren. And we'll see that as we trace the story of this family, that things can really change. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Well, God, we are broken people prone to repeat patterns of family brokenness. Heal us, Lord. We pray for everyone here who, who didn't get the blessing that they needed from the family that they grew up in. We pray for the scars and the second guessing and the shame and the loneliness that's a result of that. Give to us all the ability to understand, to forgive, and to break free. Bless us, O Lord, and help us to be a blessing. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, we place our trust in you, and we do so in the powerful, life-changing, redeeming name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And everybody agreed and said, amen, amen.